You're listening to What Goes On Here, and I'm Sam Walker. Whoever we are, and whatever we do, we all have moments when we feel like we don't quite fit with the world around us. What Goes On Here is where you can listen to real stories of people who at times couldn't see a way forward, people who found themselves stuck, maybe in a life they never imagined would be theirs, people who had to face their fears, face themselves, but they changed and change lives of people around them too. Episode 3, Barbara. Barbara Myers is a hugely successful and critically lauded painter and sculptor. She's exhibited across the UK and Europe and her pieces and commissions sit on private collections worldwide. Creating art is what makes her tick. Love it. it fe- it's like I know when I'm... Cre- it's like... It's like heaven to me. I love it. It's like utopia to me. But Barbara didn't go to art school. And in fact, she'd never even picked up a paintbrush until in her 40s, she walked into a high street stationery shop. I bought, I wouldn't know if a canvas was cheap or not cheap. I bought a few canvases and I bought some paints and brushes. And I had this twitching in my fingers, like this need to put what was in my head, in my fingers, onto the canvas. But I've never painted before. I didn't know primary colours. I didn't know anything. But what drove Barbara to start on what would become so much more than just a successful career was a series of unbearable tragedies. It was devastating. It's, it's, I felt battered. I felt wrecked. Um, I felt as if my soul was broken. How do you reconcile the fact that unless such painful events had happened in your life, you never would have discovered the thing that brings you so much joy? And I don't normally talk about her, especially in public and in any of the articles I do. But yeah, I'm going to share it with you. Tell me about growing up. Um, I grew up in what you call the Valleys. Uh, It's a coal mining town called Llanelli which is in South Wales. Um, um, Everybody knew everybody. We never locked our front doors. We knew the milkman, the postman. Everybody was our friend. And we milked the cows for our milk in the morning. And, yeah, it was a really chilled, peaceful, lovely... uh, It was just gorgeous. I'm the youngest of six, and I'm a twin. But I'm actually not the youngest of six. I'm 20 minutes older than my twin. (laughs) Um, I adored my father and I loved and adored my mother. So you felt loved? Oh, great warmth. I had three older sisters in, like, my eldest sister's 18 years old and my second sister's 16 years old and so, so on and so forth. Yeah, I had not one mother. I had, yeah, I had four mothers. What did you want to be when you were older, when you were a child? A tennis player. A tennis player? I dreamed of being, what was it, Yvonne Goulagong? Who are they? I can't remember who they were in my day. Um, Oh, I I fantasised about being a tennis player. Yeah. Did you get a chance to play much tennis in the valleys? Certainly not. (laughs) Certainly not. We we, We didn't have toys. I remember there was a Barbie doll that... I was desperate for all my parents said no 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 go to the quarry opposite go and make your own toys no there was no <laughs> such thing there was compendium of games but I never got one 
And I certainly, as I said, didn't get Barbie dolls. Um, all we got was a rugby ball. And my brother used to think that my twin and I, Susan, my twin, were the rugby balls. And you think I'm joking, I'm not. And when he was annoyed with us, he used to pick us up by the scruff of our neck and hook us on to the back of the door. And I won't say any more. That's <laughs> <laughs> the truth. So you dreamed of being a tennis player, but even though you had this idyllic childhood, mm. um, was art a part of your life, a part of your family's right. life at all? Uh, no. But uh, my first piece of art was picked for the Royal Steadford of Wales and it was Guy Fawkes and I was about 12. This is a school project? Yeah. So, no, I wasn't brought up with art at all. But you moved away from Wales? I moved away because my mother and father were worried we wouldn't find a decent husband. So she, she, <laughs> we, was, we, were sh- we were shipped off to Liverpool. My mother was Liverpoolian and we were sent to live with my brother and what we didn't realise is... We couldn't understand that nobody would ask us out, no boys would look at us, and we didn't realise till years later that my brother had warned them all he would absolutely kill them. <laughs> they, they, never mind anything. If they as much as touched us or kissed us, he'd kill them. Anyway, I, I worked in the business, business and design centre. It was a practical mm. secretarial admin job. I went to a local girls' school in Clenetley, and then I did a secretarial course. I went to a technical college where all my other sisters went to university. And, yeah... But despite her brother warning all the men in Liverpool away from his little sister, at the age of 23, Barbara met Robin. Within six weeks, we were engaged. And within six months, we were married. Quickly, because my mother at the time was having treatment for um, cancer treatment, chemotherapy. And we actually didn't know whether she'd make it. And we wanted her to be around but when she heard I was getting married she remember but she was in hospital and all of a sudden she sat up and she said to my father organize this get the caterers do this and it was like she'd come alive again and yeah I was married within six months and happy yeah I was happy yes within a few years Barbara had two children Alexis and Josh and she was working hard running a business with her sisters we had a family fashion business in Liverpool and I ran that with my twin and my elder sister. It was a fantastic time in my life and, yeah, I loved it. But then something completely unforeseen and unbearable happened. Yes. Uh, it was the first day of the summer holidays and I had the most horrible dream the night before that... Uh, it's awful premonition that I couldn't breathe and I was drowning. It was awful. Anyway, the next morning I woke up and my husband, Robin, was meant to be taking um, my daughter out for the day. It was the first day of the summer holidays. And we got up and he he changed his mind. He said, I'm really busy. I hope you don't mind. I said, don't worry, I'll take her into work with me. Blah, 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 blah. And... I went into work and I said, I feel really ill. I don't know what's wrong with me. I've got the most awful feeling something's wrong. And I remember going home about lunchtime and I was pottering in the garden because in those days I used to love gardening. Mm. And there was a knock on the door and there was two police. There was a policewoman and a policeman. And I remember saying, or I can remember them saying, can we come in? And yeah, it was the news that nobody wants to hear. My husband was killed in a car accident and, yeah, it changed my life forever, yeah. It, yeah, it was a horrific time. 
uh, people used to say to me, it takes three years. And I thought, oh, uh, what, what are they saying? But it's true. Mm. First year, you can't get over it. You're on a cloud somewhere. Second year, you're coming off that cloud and facing reality. And the third year, you're trying to build the blocks again. And I had a three-year-old and a nine-year-old. When you say three years, it seems like the blink of an eye when you look at an entire lifetime. But living through that, running a business, trying to sort out your husband's affairs, two very small children who've just lost their daddy. Oh, it was hard. It's those three years. I couldn't even sleep on my own in the house. I lived in quite a remote cottage and I felt my husband was everywhere. I was really struggling. Did it change you? Oh, gosh. It changed me. Um, I remember I was on holiday with my son and daughter and my family somewhere abroad and my son Josh was playing up in the lift. He was about three and a half. And I remember somebody shouting at me saying, can't you keep being quiet? Can't, you know, and I remember screaming. I shouldn't really say He's just lost his father. I was screaming, you know, don't ever speak to I was screaming but then when I look back and I think gosh how could I have done that but you know you can never judge a book by its cover they thought that he was a naughty boy I couldn't cope you know I was it's it's hard it's really hard hard times but the number of times we've all sat on public transport or in a supermarket and watched a child having a tantrum and we we've all tutted we've all rolled our eyes but you you never know what's going on in someone's life no you don't you can sit no you can't you can I, w- I would say, thank God people don't know. And, uh, and, and I'm grateful that people haven't gone through what I've gone through. Plenty of people have, but you have to be grateful. And I used to get really angry because people used to see me and cross the other side of the road. And I used to think, gosh, can't they just say hello to me? But as I've got older, I've realised they couldn't cope. I can't blame them for that. But after you lost your husband... So instantly, there was no warning, and mm. your two children very, very young. But speaking to you, you, had this determination to rebuild your life. You had this determination to to be happy again. I wanted no. I, I want. I wanted a man back in my life, and truthfully, I was very fortunate because I did rebuild my life. You were set up, weren't you, on a blind date? Yeah, I was. Yeah, my elder sister was at work, and somebody came in. And she said, how's Barbara? And she said, oh, she's awful. Can't do anything with her. And she said, would you like a date? And my sister grabbed her, sat her down. I'll tell me all about him. And he rang me. And I thought, oh, what a lovely voice. And the rest is history. He, yeah, he's interesting, charming, cultured. And yeah, uh, I'm very fortunate. I've had two fantastic men in my life. I suppose the, the most difficult thing to talk about is what happened in your life next which following the devastation of your death of your husband was just unthinkable for for any any parent to go through and you lost your daughter yeah it's strange but I will share it with you Um, I'm talking to you today and it's the anniversary of her passing yesterday and I don't normally talk about her especially in public and in any of the articles I do but yeah I'm going to share it with you Um, she was meant to be with her father the the day her father got killed by some divine miracle he didn't take her and losing your husband at that time was devastating if I'd lost Alexis as well 
yeah, I would have been, they wouldn't, I don't know if I could have coped, but I was given her back for mm, not long. She was never the same after her father died. She was her father's little girl and she struggled. She struggled. She had, a, she was depressed and she didn't really want to be here without him. And we fought to keep her here. But unfortunately, she took her own life in the year 2000. She was 17. And yeah, it was devastating. It's, it's, losing a husband is beyond tragic, but you rebuild your life. But losing a daughter is something you never get over. You learn to live with it. You don't forget. And when it's birthdays, you don't forget. When it's anniversaries of passing, you don't forget. And when you see her peer group get married, is the hardest for me. Because, you know, um, it's strange because people have stopped inviting me. And I feel like screaming at them to say, you know, we were part of your lives. We were part of your kids' lives. Don't cut me out. Please. I'm no different to what I was. Just Alexis isn't here. But it, it's um, the stigma still stays. Of course, at the time you lost your daughter, you were still a, a, a day-to-day mother. You still had a son to look after as I well. I was awful, couldn't cope. I never went back to work in the family business. I became completely overprotective to my son, completely spoiled him, suffocated him with love. You were terrified, I'm sure. I was terrified. I couldn't do it. I felt battered. I felt wrecked. Um, I felt as if... My soul was broken. You talked about when you lost your husband, you physically had to get out of the house that you'd shared together. I did, yeah. What about this time around? We moved. We moved to Manchester. My husband, second husband, Tony, was from Manchester. And he said, Barbara, we're moving. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I've, I need... I don't want people looking at me with sad eyes. Nobody knows me in Manchester. It was hard. It was very, very hard. I had a whole house. I had my antique bits everywhere from my old house. And I remember saying to Tony, I don't want this anymore. I want, I don't want what to them became dreary water, Victorian watercolours. I, 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 I want brightness in my life. I just need to fill my life with brightness. You physically needed to put colour Onto on the walls wall, of your house. 100% right. I went out looking, searching for big art pieces or small art pieces. And I couldn't afford them. They were, in, for, to me, but a fortune. And I thought, oh, what can I do? So I went in to a cheap shop called The Works in Altrincham. I bought, I wouldn't know if a canvas was cheap or not cheap. I bought a few canvases. And I bought some paints and brushes. And I had this twitching in my fingers, like this need to put what was in my head, in my fingers, onto the canvas. But I've never painted before. I didn't know primary colours. I didn't know to mix uh, colours. I didn't know anything. So, so, so you're in your 40s. You've never picked up a paintbrush no. in your life, apart from when you were at school. Mm. And yet you walk into a shop and just buy loads of art materials. Correct. Um, and I started playing. I call it playing. And at first... I started copying, thinking I was a Matisse or whatever. I don't know what what I was doing. And then I thought, I don't need all this. What am I doing trying to copy everybody else's work? Why don't I just explore myself? And nobody needs to know. I'll just play. 
and I started to play and I had about four or five canvases in this empty room with no furniture um, and a few friends came in and they said to me ooh who's done that I said oh me you've done that I said yeah can you do them for me huh, that, and that quickly uh, that's quickly as that yes <laughs> Um, they, Did you know at this stage where all this was coming from? N- no. No? No, I didn't. I wasn't thinking on a deep level then. I just wasn't thinking on any level at all. I was just playing. And to me, it was a therapeutic game. Yeah. Then a close friend asked Barbara if she could auction some of her paintings for a charity night that she was holding. I, I, I took my work to Liverpool with my husband. Get outside the house. Big marquee in the garden. I can't go in there. I'm going to make a fool of myself. Nobody's going to want... How can I... Uh? I go, go into the house and there's the big marquee and there's all these artists hanging up their pictures and what have you. And they looked at me and looked me up and down. And I thought, what the fudge am I doing here? I said, Tony, there's no room on the walls. They don't want me here. I'm going to leave my work in the main house, leaned up against the wall. I told you I shouldn't have come. You shouldn't have brought me. What am I doing here? By the end of the evening... I'd sold every piece bar one. And I remember crying the whole way home. And it like gave my work validation. It gave me a little bit of belief in me. Then I started craving for the art world for some unknown reason. You know, I studied the Bauhaus. I studied the Guggenheims. And you've never had any training? You were never drawn to this before in your life? No, But then I felt there was an energy in me. I felt that um, there was an energy coming through me. And I thought, oh, is it you, Alexis? Are you on my shoulder? I couldn't... Nobody could believe the colours I was doing. Nobody could believe what I was doing. And I didn't really believe it myself. Um, And then the orders were coming in quite (laughs) fast and furious from my work. And I never planned a piece of art. I just let it flow. And most people say to me even today, well, don't you draw it out first? Don't you plan it? Don't you? And I just don't. Um, I just let the energy flow. And by then I was doing commissions, yeah, all over the place. Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely. I didn't realise at the time how much it was helping me to rebuild those bridges and heal, heal myself from within. Within just a couple of years of picking up that first brush, offers of exhibitions were coming in, more and more commissions were requested, and then a conversation at a party led Barbara to try something else that she'd never done before, sculpture. It was at a workshop in Devon, but she didn't want to go. I don't know anybody, I don't know a thing about sculpting. Anyway, don't ask me why. Got myself a flight, didn't know soul. I was so nervous. Um, I arrived in Devon. They picked me up. And I remember one woman said to me as I arrived, I've never forgotten it. Ew, is your accent for real? <laughs> you know, is that, is that real? I said, I'm afraid so. I said, if I've been to elocution, there's no hope for me. And I remember I started working with their type of plaster. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I thought, oh, my God, I love it. It was like magic in my hands. It was like utopia to me. And I was the first to get up in the morning at half six. I was the last when the light went down to leave. And so I went back to Manchester, learned the basic basics and opened my own little place with some with another girl, this girl that took me down there. 
and um, I remember I started sculpting and the first piece I produced was a piece called Primitive Woman and it's actually was one of the stars of my opening exhibition and it's like two a woman going from primitive times into modernity and she's like cut down the middle with a raw bronze and that when I look back really is me it's mm. like I was broken and like I was trying to be um, healed and the arms or the horns it's quite it's a very powerful piece and it's like she's she's stretching up looking into the future knowing what you went through in your life to get to the point where you started making art knowing that it's such a personal process for you to go through is it ever a difficult process emotionally love it it fe- it's like i know when i'm cr- it's like almost like heaven to me i love it it's like utopia to me i have to have that relationship with the piece my piece is what i'm known for are outlines and the outlines are about the outline of a person. And I believe that you can look at somebody and think you know them, and you're looking at them like I'm looking at you. And it's can it takes a lifetime to build up those layers. And when those layers eventually build up, you become complete. But it takes a lifetime of adversity, a lifetime of good things, bad things, happy things, sad things, to become complete. It's such a difficult thing to try and understand I suppose the cruelty of the fact that if you hadn't lost your husband Mm. if you hadn't lost Mm. your daughter your teenage daughter you never would have discovered and embraced the thing that now brings you so much joy yeah but I believe that was part of my journey I believe that everybody has a choice I believe it's like being on a railway track I believe sometimes you come off, but you've got to know how to get back on that railway track. And I believe that was my journey. I feel fortunate and I feel privileged. I don't feel sad. You know, no, I don't feel sad. I feel I'm blessed. I feel, and people say, how can you feel blessed when you've lost all this? I, I don't think like that. I believe in the afterlife. I believe they're in a better place. I believe I've been blessed with a wonderful husband, second husband, fantastic son and daughter, a gorgeous grandson and stepchildren I can't ask for more I I feel as if uh, I never even believe that these things are happening to me I still never registered and even when we had the first Cato opening and I remember walking down Hampstead Hill this is a Cato art gallery yeah and I remember walking down the hill and oh I was so scared and I thought it's going to be a disaster I didn't know all those people were there for me the exhibition was dedicated to my daughter um, Alexis and people had come from all over very close friends of mine Andy and Claire had come from Australia and I was humble they came from everywhere makes me happy and it makes me sad but it makes me fortunate privileged and I feel yeah I'm a real lucky human being to have had this journey and to come out on the other side and think, you know, I did a monumental two years ago, which was two and a half tons of sculpture, and it was 18 to 20 foot high. And I remember having a meeting with this, these architects and all these uh, structural engineers and what have you. 
And I'm thinking, gosh, they're asking me all these questions. How am I going to be in a Welsh girl from the valleys? How am I going to be in a meeting with all these, you know, engineers and architects? But I remember coming out and going, yes, on the way home. I've done it. You know, I've done it. And when you think that I'm doing the Chelsea Barracks Garden this year and it's the, a biggie. And again, I'm thinking, gosh, I never... My biggest problem, if you can call it a problem, is I never really register that these things have really happened to me. I can't ask for more. You found a a joy and a passion at a time in your life you probably never thought you'd feel those feelings again through art, which is something that you hadn't been a part of your life at all. A lot of people don't have that that joy, that passion, and don't have that that thing that really makes us tick. How do you help people find that? What encouragement could you give? Lots of people ask me that. I have phone calls all the time. Can you help my daughter? Can you do... How do you get people to tick? Right. From bereavement, for example, I implore anybody, go wherever you want, buy a cheap canvas. Don't worry what you put on the canvas. So many people are scared to put a little brush stroke and they're shaking just play and explore yourself and you'll be surprised what comes out on that canvas and don't worry what people think of your work the biggest fear people have what if people don't like it I don't think like that I do it for me go out there and explore yourself go out there and do things you, that you would never do and you know I'm not 21 I wish I was but I'm not but would I have had this at 21 would I be the person I am today at 21? The answer is no. It comes through adversity. It comes through tragedy. It comes with going out there to find out who you are. I went out there to help myself. Little did I know that all this was before me. Barbara Myers was talking to me, Sam Walker. You've been listening to What Goes On Here. Coming up next, episode four, Steve. Before I could go into the board meeting, I was sat in a toilet, just locked the door, put a towel under it, smoked some crack, and then, then smoked some heroin to come down and then go into a meeting. I was cold. You know, when you see great whites, black eyes, and that's, that's it, just nothing going on in there. That's what I was like. I just swam through the ocean, took what I wanted to take, and it was inconsequential to me. 